0: You're listening to One Woman, empowering stories of women in the outer northeast. One woman has a story. One woman is inspiring. One woman can make a difference. One woman is you. You're listening to One Woman, a podcast series of inspiring women telling their story in the outer northeast of Melbourne. It is International Women's Day, and I'm very happy for episode one to be in the studio with Elise. How are you today?
1: I'm well. How are you doing?
0: Good, thank you. It's great to have you in here. We're going to talk a little bit about your life, but also about being a woman in Australia and around the world in 2019. Exciting. Okay, so you're a teacher? Yes. Okay, what's it like being a female teacher in Australia?
1: Wow, that's a full-on question. Um, I mean, I like it, so I'm a teacher. But um, it's hard to answer because I am currently doing supply or CRT, So I'm not full-time at a school. So I don't see a lot of the background and politics and admin and all those things that go into it.
0: What are the challenges for teaching in Australia?
1: The challenges are, I guess, uh, that every teacher faces, which is just all those things. I mean, there's such a range of challenges. In terms of your actual teaching at a school, there's challenges with students, with their... Behavior, that's one whole area, and then there's challenges with actually teaching them and getting them to know what it is they need to learn. Um, in terms of the actual teaching, And the students themselves, one of the biggest challenges is just catering to... uh, There's so many different types of children in one classroom. And then on top of that, you might have additional needs and um, EAL needs, special needs, all those extra things. And then outside of teaching and the students, the other challenges, I guess, is just a big one for every teacher is time management, fitting in how much you need to do within the one day.
0: What challenges do you see with female students as opposed to teaching boys or, or generally the difference between boys and girls in the in the schoolroom and even in the schoolyard?
1: I think um, one of the biggest things I see with female students is I think girls are subconsciously, and it's not... I don't think it's... Um, I think it's just the way that females and all of us are in general, which kind of spills out into the classroom, is girls are less likely, I believe, to take risks and experience a lot of trial and error. I think boys are encouraged um, to be more adventurous and they're, I think, a little bit more okay with making mistakes. Not all boys, obviously, Mm -hmm. but if we're generalising. I think it's reinforced in so many ways. I think if we look at the storybooks that we read to young girls and all of those things that most of the time the people that are off on adventures and doing all these exciting things are usually male characters. Right. And the ones that are being saved and all of those things, stereotypically, are females. Not so much anymore. I think there's a lot more now coming out that is really across the board. But I do see um, that a lot of girls, they're trial and error, and they're a little bit more worried about having things right and being perfect.
0: Okay. So you think that's a little bit of cultural conditioning?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, Definitely with girls. And I think, without getting too much into everything that's happening, but there's... A while ago, there was debates about should girls um, have to wear skirts at school? And I think this is one of the major things that people were talking about in their arguments against it, saying they shouldn't have to wear skirts all the time, is it's another thing that reinforces that um, limiting their opportunities, getting out there and doing the same things and playing uh, the same way. And they're not able to jump off this or roll around and do that because they're limited Mm -hmm. um, in what they can do.
0: Okay, so you've taught overseas as well. So tell me some of the differences you see with uh, females. In you taught in India and also in England.
1: Um, well, India is obviously a massive difference, um, and I could talk about that all day. But um, um, first, the first thing that I saw that was really obvious, um, that you could just see, everyone could just see straight away, Is when they ran their PE lessons. So I went there through university on a study tour first um, through a really good program called SWIRL and when we arrived we were just um, observing some of the lessons and I didn't actually see this first. A few boys in our tour who were teaching PE came back and told us about it and then I went and looked and Over there, they brought the whole PE class out and the two boys we were with started to take the lesson and they were a bit confused. The two boys from Australia teachers were a bit confused because all of the girls came out and just stood under a tree and the PE teacher began, the Indian PE teacher, began um, taking the lesson just with all the boys. And the student teachers that on our tour asked what was happening and they said, oh, you know, it's PE. It's time for the girls to sit out. And I witnessed it and it was really interesting and I kind of asked them why and they didn't really understand why we were asking the question because they were like, well, it's PE, girls don't do that. Mm.
0: How did that make you feel?
1: Um. Well, it was interesting because if that was happening here, I would obviously be a little bit more outraged. But over there, it was more just trying to take it all in and understand what was happening because it's a completely different culture. I didn't want to, you know, I wasn't It didn't have the, didn't, I guess, provoke the same kind of anger as maybe it would here. Sure. But then the other, then as we went further through the program, the study tour, we did story writing. That's what the program was story writing in remote locations. Um, And I was in a group with a bunch of year eight girls. And one of the girls, Lohitha, wrote a beautiful story called I Am a Girl. And it was about women's rights. And it was beautiful, but it was really, really, uh, that was the most shocking thing. She wrote, her story was about why can't girls have the same rights as boys, essentially. And she told us about her schooling and how a lot of people still see schooling young girls in India as a waste of time because they will grow up and be married off for money. And a lot of people further than that believe that have being, having a girl as a baby is a waste of time. And she said that in her villages, she's seen young girls, babies, infants, in bins and dogs mm. eating them. So that was really quite shocking.
0: Yeah, confronting.
1: Yeah. Mm. Um, and these girls were sitting in a circle talking about it. And I asked them, who believes this? Like, where have you seen this? And they were all talking about it. So they would have been about 14 years old. And they were all talking about it as it was not news to them.
0: Right. You moved from India to teach in England. What are some of the things you noticed there? <laughs>
1: um, in England, uh, it was interesting because I, I obviously I was just in India. And I thought that England wouldn't be that different to Australia because... Uh, culturally speaking, we're quite similar. Mm-hmm. However, it was um, much more Victorian, I'd say. I guess a little bit more <laughs> old school. Uh, so basically the biggest difference there is when I was talking before about there's all kinds of challenges uh, when you're teaching and it obviously varies depending on what school you're at and the different students you have. It's hard to say. Um, over there though, one thing really stood out for me, which was the time management side of things um, and teachers over there I believe are just a little bit more time for because it is so old school in a sense they're much more focused on their assessment and marking and data um, so yeah they're much more data driven and I felt like that well, what I witnessed was They have less planning time per week, but their planning time actually isn't planning time. Um, And again, I'm speaking very generally because it's only the few schools that I witnessed. And so obviously this is not every school, but from my experience, their planning time was basically used for marking and assessment. Everything that the child does in class needs to be put in a book. Even if they're doing hands-on lessons, the teachers will need to take photos of that, put it in the book and everything needs to have... Um, some sort of assessment and data collected with it so their planning time and making their actual lessons and making their activities is all done at home and they have to teach we here in primary we have specialist teachers over there um, they don't really have specialist teachers the primary school teachers have to teach PE science all the extra things art performing arts And their assistant teachers, when they have their planning time, their assistant teachers take a lesson. So they might choose, whenever they have time off, they might choose something like handwriting or something like that. Their assistant teacher will take it. And so then basically their, their planning time or their time's off. They're not making their lessons or they can't use their laptop. Everything needs to be left in their room because all their resources need to be there for their assistant teacher, if that makes sense. Yep. So basically there's a lot more that they're taking home and as a result of that, I think a lot more teachers are burnt out and there's um, a higher demand for teachers over there. No one really wants to get into the profession.
0: Right. Okay. So when you returned to Australia, did it change your perception of teaching in Australia?
1: Yeah, definitely. And as I said, I'm still a really new teacher in Australia, but just the overall culture um, of teaching and I guess the standard of teachers and standard of our lessons or our style, I guess, a lot of schools' philosophies, um, I value a lot more now, just that whole attitude and approach towards learning and teaching. The approach towards teaching, I I definitely think, is a little bit more forward-thinking than England.
0: Did it change the way you think about how women are perceived and treated in Australia?
1: Uh, being in England and in like both places, mm-hmm. yeah. I think that I first when I went on my first uh, time overseas was my first time overseas was in India in I think 2015 or something. That that first study tour, and when I came back from that, and that girl Lahitha wrote the story uh, about women's rights. That really. Um, I guess, changed my outlook towards um, not just in Australia but women's rights as a whole. And I really started to, um, I guess, be more aware of little things. And I think I used to be a little bit more like, oh, we've come so far and everything's fine. Whereas seeing how shocking things are all over the world, it does hit home and it does make me feel like I'm, um, even though I am privileged because i obviously there's different levels of privilege like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm privileged because i'm a white woman yet i do feel that i'm disadvantaged in general because i'm a woman not as different not as disadvantaged as a woman of minority but right there's i think i've developed a connection there with all women and everything that everyone's going through
0: there seems to be a uh a renaissance of a movement that maybe started in the 60s and into the 70s and kind of dropped off a little bit um what are your thoughts on that and uh uh, the women's movement that's happening or resurgence that's taken place
1: yeah i I definitely think there's like um i think it's like a fourth wave of feminism that's come through and a lot of it i think has to do with the me too movement i do think that's a massive social movement that's sparked all of this and So what are
0: your thoughts on the Me Too movement?
1: I mean, I think that a- anyone who is in a has some sort of platform who can spark something like this, I think it's a great thing. I I'm a big um advocate for like I know that social media and lots of these things have their disadvantages, but I do think that there are massive advantages that we can see such a spread of knowledge uh, go out. And I know there's the other side to that where people can choose what they want to hear and choose what they don't want to hear. But I think part of the reason all of this has become such a big movement is because of that. I do think it's a big positive and I think more and more people are becoming aware. And I know that some people are on the side of, um, oh, we, you know, we offend everyone now. We can't do anything without offending anyone. But I do think that the small, I do think it is a small percentage of people who are overly sensitive, and I do think that's that's blown up out of proportion to kind of silence more people yep. or make people feel comfortable. And I think a lot of people don't want to feel like they're being attacked, and that's yep. their go-to.
0: Now, we hear from um, from men who are anti Me Too and that's expected... In some way that people are going to be like that. What are your thoughts on the women who are anti-Me Too?
1: I don't really um, understand it. I think people get caught up in other things around it and read too much into anecdotal experiences and other people they know writing on Facebook or other people they know where they're watching a video but it's completely someone's opinion and then they're taking that on and saying, well, this person said this. Well, if you actually just, if it's something that's happening in the world and you want to be a part of the conversation, like actually find some reputable sources to read about it and learn about it and then be a part of the conversation. Um, and I think I have to believe that a lot of women who are anti-me too, maybe they probably just don't understand fully the core of it. And I, I think it does go back to people don't want to feel bad. They don't want to feel attacked. And I do think sometimes there are, women and maybe this might be an assumption on my part but i have come across a lot of older women who maybe have lived their life a certain way their whole life and had you know a husband or bosses or people and they've you know experienced slaps on the ass or mm-hmm. um i don't know
0: so is there is there a time limit on abuses or injustice so is it is it okay to say that was 10 years ago 15 years ago 20 years ago get over it
1: no definitely not and what I mean about those women is I think a lot of people maybe they've lived their life a whole way and now they're saying, Oh, you know, it's it's normal and this is it. people are blowing it up out of proportion because maybe if they actually do enter the conversation properly and realise how bad all this stuff is, they might feel shit about the whole way they've lived their life and they don't wanna they don't wanna feel that way. They don't wanna feel like they have let themselves down or let other people down or been disappointed. And so it's easier for them to say, mm, everyone's overreacting. Whereas I think I've met a lot of people who say, everyone's overreacting, you know, um, but they maybe, like, I think if they came face to face to, with someone who is a survivor, would they say that to their face? Because the whole Me Too movement is Me Too, this has happened to me too. And it's people coming out saying that they've been abused.
0: Yeah. What message do you want to give to young girls and young women listening?
1: I think I want young girls and young women to not feel like they need to live up to something that they're told they need to live up to. I think I want everyone, not just girls, to be more, and it's very easy to say because I don't do this all the time. I don't think, I think it's really hard for anyone, but I do think women experience this more as they trying to meet up to some sort of standard. And I think where the whole idea about feminism and all these things, I do believe in that there's a patriarchy and I do believe that there's a lot of things controlled by people wanting you to think a certain way and a lot of the times a lot of the messages we're taking in are things that are actually at the end of the day being sold to us and I I guess the message I want people to take in is to really think about who you are and what it is and be comfortable with yourself and be comfortable with yourself because it's what you you believe and what you think and not because it's something that you think you have to be.
0: One of the things uh, we like to do at the end of each show is to ask the subject a uh, series of questions and just get your straight off the cuff answer. What is your favourite word?
1: Oh, um, wow.
0: Your least favourite word? Drip. What turns you on or inspires you?
1: People who are really passionate or care, caring.
0: What turns you off?
1: Um, ignorance.
0: What's your favourite curse word?
1: <laughs> Probably just
0: Use it in a sentence.
1: Um, well, f-
0: What profession other than your own would you like to attempt?
1: I don't know. Maybe some sort of journalistic TV presenter.
0: Mm-hmm. What profession would you not like to do?
1: Oh, I have no idea. I don't think I could do something really heart-wrenching, like work with dying children or something like that.
0: What song would you like played at your funeral?
1: Um, yeah, I want Mark... Kozilek, around and around.
0: Okay. And uh, what book are you reading at the moment?
1: Sapiens.
0: Okay. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: It's a brief history of humankind. So it talks about where we come from and I guess why the way humans are the way they are. It's really interesting.
0: Okay. And what's your favorite book?
1: I don't know. That's hard to answer. Maybe I'm going to say Sapiens because it's the one I'm reading right now and I'm enjoying it.
0: Elise, thanks for joining us on One Woman today.
1: Thank you. It was great.